We have a lot to work through this morning, quite a few verses, and we're not actually going to be back in Philippians for another six weeks. So a lot of things that I'd like to tie up in this passage, which means that we should get right to it. The Apostle Paul, remember, he is imprisoned in Rome. He's awaiting either his execution or his release. And while he is there, he writes a letter to the church, to the Christians in Philippi. They, they are the Philippians. Most of them probably know Paul personally. They're Christians because Paul came and preached the gospel in their town on one of his journeys. So Paul writes them a personal letter. And he writes them to encourage them and he writes them to exhort them or to give them instruction. They were understandably worried about Paul. They were worried about their spiritual father. And so Paul gives them this letter to report on how he's doing and how the gospel is doing in Rome. But he also writes to exhort them. He knows them. He knows their struggles. He he knows their issues. He knows their tendencies. He knows their sins. And so he writes to exhort them to grow in Christ. So he begins his letter by giving a sort of report of his life and ministry, detailing how he and the gospel are doing. And by the way, he is doing surprisingly well, especially considering that he is facing possible execution. And by God's grace, the gospel is also doing very well. Paul is not scared. He is content whether he lives or dies, and the gospel is thriving. It has even made its way all the way into the Roman emperor's household. So he begins with this sort of missionary or ministry report to encourage them. And then the exhortation really begins in chapter 1, verse 27. He breaks off and from the ministry report, and then he begins to exhort the Philippians, and he does that There's a section all the way through chapter 2, verse 18, which we finished up last week. And he said things to the Philippians and to us like, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and have the attitude of Christ, have an attitude of humility and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You hear the exhortation. And do all things without grumbling or complaining. And shine as lights in the world. And then in chapter 2, verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. So a lot of exhortation. And don't forget this. It is always aimed at your joy. As he exhorts the Philippians and gives them a list, if you will, of things that they need to do, things they need to work on. It is aimed at their joy and it is aimed at your joy. I say that because when you are being exhorted, I know it's not a word we use often. I'm trying to use it quite a bit in the sermon series. Get us more comfortable with that word. 
when you are being exhorted, it doesn't always feel like the goal is joy. When you're being corrected by someone, rebuked by someone, it doesn't necessarily feel like the goal of that is joy. But if the exhortation is from God, according to his word, through Paul or a godly parent or a friend or a church, their goal is your joy. They love you. They love you. And they know what you should know, that true joy is obstructed by sin. True joy, Christian happiness, is screwed up by sin. So we want that sin confronted. We, we want to see it. We want to know it. We want conviction. We want to be corrected. And so those who love you, Truly, those who love you, they confront you. They correct you. They discipline you, rebuke you, and challenge you. And it is because they, like Paul for the Philippians, are praying and working for, chapter 1, verse 25, your progress and your joy in the faith. So these exhortations, all these do this, do this, do this, and your joy are intimately connected and totally dependent on one another. So in our text today, Paul is actually at the end of that section of exhortation. He's returning to his ministry report, and he reports specifically on two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. But as Paul gives this report on these two men, he is also lifting them up as examples of everything he has just exhorted us to do. Here are two examples of contentment. Here are two examples of humility. Here are two examples of hard work. Here are two men who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. So let's take a closer look at these two men. And then let's take a closer look at ourselves in light of these men. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the word that you've given us and the truth that is here. Help us to behold your truth today. And to believe it. And to embrace it. And to do it. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. If you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find it on page 637. The Philippians are worried and anxious about Paul, just like you get anxious about people that you love. And so they have sent two men to Paul. They've sent them to encourage him and to minister to him as he's in prison. And those two men are Timothy and Epaphroditus. They have traveled over 800 miles. It's probably taken them several weeks just to be with Paul. And by the point Paul is writing this letter. They have been with him for quite a while. 
And now he is about to send one of them back with this letter. And so in the middle of the letter, in our verses today, Paul takes the spotlight off of himself and off of the Philippians, and he puts the spotlight on these two men, on Timothy and Epaphroditus. And here is who they are, and here is what Paul is saying. These two men are examples of what I have been talking about. Imitate them. Right? So he begins this letter with this ministry report of how he and the gospel are doing. He breaks off because he's not just writing to encourage them, but to exhort them. So he gives them a lot of exhortation, a lot of instruction. Then he returns to his ministry report, reporting on these two men But it's tied to the exhortation because he's lifting these two men up and saying, see, look to Timothy and look to Epaphroditus. Imitate these men because they are doing now everything that I have been exhorting you to do. So we're going to look at them one at a time. Let's start with Timothy. He brings up Timothy in verses 19 through 24. Let me read those verses again. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul would like to send Timothy back to the Philippians. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And again in verse 23, I hope, therefore, to send him. But at this point, Paul is not. He's not ready to send Timothy. He's not willing to send Timothy because he may need his companionship. Verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him when? Just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. In other words... What is Paul saying? Though Paul suspects, he said this earlier in the letter, that he's going to be released, that he's not going to be executed. He's not. He will be executed later. Though he suspects that he's going to be released from prison, he's not sure. And if he's not released and has to face execution, he wants Timothy by his side. The Apostle Paul. If he's going to need to face execution. He wants Timothy by his side. Now the verses. In between verses 20 through 22. Tell us what was so great about Timothy. Because that's a big deal, isn't it? They want Timothy. Paul wants Timothy. Why does Paul want Timothy? Why is Timothy so dear and important to Paul? Well, that's what we're told in verses 20 through 22. What did Paul say? For I have no one like him 
who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Let's think about what we have in these verses. Paul says that Timothy, and he says this elsewhere, is like a son to him. Timothy is like his child, he says in verse 22. By this point, Timothy had been serving alongside Paul for at least 10 years. They'd lived together. They'd prayed together. They had preached together. They had pastored together. They had been persecuted together. And during that time, through that decade, Timothy had proven Paul said, Timothy had proven himself. He had been totally unwavering in his commitment to Paul and the gospel. Ten years of ministry. And Timothy has been by his side day in and day out, unwavering in his commitment. So Paul says in verse 22, Philippians, you know Timothy's proven worth. He's not all talk, is what that means. He has been tested. This word means like a precious metal in the furnace. The heat has been turned up on this man. And he, after 10 years, is still there, faithful to Paul, faithful to the Philippians, and faithful to to the Lord. Look at verse 20 with me. There is something here that stands out. This is perhaps what Paul is most proud of in Timothy. But the boasting is embedded in a very sad statement. I want to see if you hear it with me. Boasting in Timothy, proud of Timothy, but it is embedded in a very sad statement. Verse 20 and 21 again. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You hear the boast, don't you? Timothy is genuinely concerned for the Philippians Welfare. We'll come back to that. But did you also hear the sad statement? Do you hear the sadness in what Paul says? Apparently, Timothy is the only one. Who is genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Paul said, I have no one like him. Paul said, they all. Seek their own interests. Let's first make sure we understand what Paul's boast is. What he's proud of in this verse. Timothy, Paul says, is genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare. The word concerned here means and is translated elsewhere as the word anxious. Anxious. Timothy, Paul is saying, is genuinely anxious for 
the Philippians. He's worried about the Philippians. And it's a good thing. Paul praises this in him. It is a good anxiety. Paul is also anxious in this same way. He says in verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. This anxiety that Timothy has for the Philippians is a good thing. It is a good anxiety. But on the other hand, you probably also know the Bible speaks negatively about anxiety. In fact, later in this very letter, in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul will command the Philippians, it's the same word, do not be anxious about anything. So what's going on here? Here he praises Timothy for being anxious for the Philippians. And then the very same word in two chapters, Paul says, do not ever be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God. So we have here in the letter of Philippians, we have this good anxiety and we have this bad anxiety. He uses the very same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 6, 25, when he said, do not be anxious about your life. So this begs the question, is anxiety a good thing or a bad thing? Is anxiety a good thing? Or a bad thing? And the answer is, it depends. It depends. So we've got to get this out of our head. All anxiety is good. All anxiety is bad. It depends. One way to discern whether or not your anxiety is good and healthy is to consider what your anxiety leads to. What does your anxiety prompt? This is very relevant because we live in an anxious society. Very anxious society. Some of you should be more anxious. Maybe never been told that. Some of you should be more anxious. You don't worry about your marriage or your kids or your sanctification or your future. And so you end up not doing anything and make very little progress in your life. Carefree is not necessarily a good thing. Not having a care in the world, no anxiety in the world is not necessarily a good thing. Carefree is often a synonym for selfish and lazy. Not having a care in the world often means not having a job in the world. Or means, or money, or ministry, or health, or family. And all of those are important. But on the other hand, Some of you are far too anxious. You should worry less about your marriage and your kids and your sanctification and your future and you should trust God more. 
You should worry less because nothing good comes from your worry. Remember the question, what does my anxiety or worry lead to? What does it prompt? And some of you, you know this, your anxiety doesn't lead to anything except more what? Anxiety. Your worry doesn't lead to anything positive. It leads to more worry. It doesn't prompt you to prayer or good works. It just paralyzes you. Paul's anxiety and Timothy's anxiety, did you catch this? It is not about themselves. It is not about their own welfare. It is about the welfare of others and it leads them to love. But it is still a painful anxiety. Paul talks about this anxiety that he has for the church, that he has for Christians. He cares for them. He loves them and he is in pain over those he loves. And yet, here's the point we should carefully make. And yet, his joy is not threatened by any of it. The principle One of them that glares at us from these verses is that Christian joy is strong. It's tough. It's resilient. Remember what I said at the very beginning of this sermon. Paul is writing this letter for the Philippians joy. Christian joy is indomitable. Christian joy does not require the absence of suffering or sorrow or trial or anxiety. And this letter of Philippians and especially this section highlights this. Let me show you what I mean. Remember, this is often called Paul's letter of joy. Philippians historically has been referred to joy all over the place in this letter. Joy, 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 joy. I'm, I'm joyful. Rejoice with me, Paul is saying. I'm writing this for your joy. I'm sending Timothy to you and Epaphroditus. They're joyful. Receive them with joy. So Paul is joyful. Timothy is joyful. Epaphroditus is joyful. And he writes so that the Philippians will be joyful. And yet, Paul is in prison awaiting possible execution. Timothy is surrounded by worthless ministers. Epaphroditus almost died and everyone's a nervous wreck. There's this anxiety that's going on. So think about the circumstances that are existing in this letter of joy. Paul's on trial, possibly going to be executed. Epaphroditus comes, Epaphroditus almost dies. Timothy is surrounded by ministers who are selfish and not selfless. And they're anxious and nervous. It's actually a very realistic portrait of Christianity, isn't it? It's refreshingly accurate. It's refreshingly honest. Being a Christian does not mean the absence of trial. It does not mean the absence of anxiety. It does not mean the absence of sorrow. It does not mean the absence of suffering. There is a lot of that in your life. And there is a lot of that in these 12 verses. 
But at the end of the day, these sorrows are powerless foes of your joy. In verse 28, Paul tells the Philippians he is sending Epaphroditus to them so that he will have less anxiety. I know I'm pointing out the obvious, but that means he has anxiety. And he'll still have anxiety, but he's hoping for less. He's worried about his friends. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, Paul said, And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Christians get anxious. In verse 27, Paul tells the Philippians that he is glad God spared Epaphroditus' life because if he would have died, Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow, which means, again, the obvious, he has sorrow and he will still have sorrow, but he's hoping for less sorrow. He's sorrowful. Christians get sorrowful. And in verse 20, He laments that Timothy is the only one around him who is genuinely concerned with the welfare of others. He's surrounded, Paul is, by selfishness. Some, we know from what he said in verse 15, are pastors who treat Paul as an enemy. How discouraging would that have been for Paul? Christians get discouraged. But here's the thing. These circumstances threaten to undo us, but they cannot. These circumstances threaten to undo us, but they cannot. Christian joy is tough. Christian joy is indomitable. Christian joy does not require the absence of sorrow or suffering or trial or anxiety or discouragement. That day is coming. But in the meantime, don't be surprised when things like anxiety are at hand. So back to our text, Timothy, you see, is an example of what Paul has been exhorting us to. Remember what Paul said earlier in this very chapter in verse three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And here he says that Timothy alone is what? Genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. So you see, Paul is holding Timothy up. Paul is holding Timothy out and saying that of all of the men with him, save maybe Epaphroditus, Timothy is the only one that Paul can trust to be sent back to Philippi who will be selfless, who will not be self-seeking, who will not be self-serving, who will at the expense of himself give himself up for others and is genuinely concerned for the Philippians. But he's the only one. This is a rare quality. Today, this is a Rare quality. I thought about how convicting it would be if you were one of those men that were with Paul in Rome and you read this letter before it went out. How convicting that would have been. 
or how sad it would have been for the Philippians to read this. How many of you could be trusted like this? Who among us would have the full confidence of their pastor to be sent out to minister selflessly? Who among us would we have no doubts about? Who among us could carry the weight, could execute the task, could set the example? It was rare for Paul in Rome. It is a rare thing today. Many of you here today have decades of life in front of you. Presumably. Decades of life in front of you. Young. In many ways, it feels like your life is just beginning. Resolve in your hearts to be like this. To be that man, to be that woman who can be without a doubt trusted to serve selflessly. What a commendation of Timothy. That's Timothy. And Paul's not sending him. (laughs) Paul says, he's mine. I need him. He's staying with me till I figure out how this is going to go. He's sending another man, Epaphroditus, who was probably a pastor from Philippi and was actually sent to Paul by the Philippians to minister to him and to serve him. So Epaphroditus was to the Philippians what Timothy was to Paul. He was a man who could be trusted with gospel service. So let's look at this example, Epaphroditus in verses 20. 5 through 30. I'll do the same thing. I'll read these verses and then we'll uh, draw out these qualities. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So here's who Paul is going to send. He's going to send Epaphroditus. He's going to send him, we see, for a few reasons. I wrote down three. First... Epaphroditus' task is done. He came, we know, from here and also from chapter 4, verse 18. He came to bring a gift to Paul. He came to bring support to Paul, to minister to him, to encourage him. And that job has been faithfully done. The second reason he's going back, while he was with Paul, apparently Epaphroditus got very sick, so sick that he almost died 
the Philippians heard about it. They've been worried sick about him. And so it will be good for them to see Epaphroditus again. He's in good shape. He's well again. And third, and this is striking, Epaphroditus, he longs to see the Philippians again. Epaphroditus wants to go home. He misses the Philippians. He misses his church. He wants to see them. Verse 26, he has been, Paul said, longing for you all. And this tells us something. Epaphroditus' love for the Philippians. Verse 26. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Think about that. So the word for distress here, by the way, is the same word that describes Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his betrayal, and it says that he was sorrowful even unto death. This is a deep anxiety. This is a deep stress that Epaphroditus had while he was sick and dying. But did you catch that it wasn't the fact that he was sick and dying that he was distressed about? He was distressed that him being sick and dying was distressing the Philippians. Which is what you feel when you love someone. What you're going through might be tough. But you're so distressed over how it affects those who love you. That's what he's been sorrowful over. He was sick and dying. And was distressed that it was causing the Philippians distress. So we know that Epaphroditus loves these people. He loves this church. Here's one more thing about Epaphroditus. We find it in verse 29 and 30. You heard it. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus is... Brave. He risked, Paul said, his life. To go and minister to Paul was not just a drive down to the hospital. 800 miles. 800 miles. Probably took him weeks to get there. And once there, think about this. Paul is not the safest man on the planet to be associated with. He's on death row. And you believe what he believes and you're promoting what he's promoting. The same thing that got him on trial could get you on trial. So he is risking all of that. And once there, he doesn't bail. And what what is it all for? To encourage his brother, Paul, to serve him. To make sure that his needs are being met. And for that task, he puts everything on the line. He puts his entire life on the line. Stays and ministers to Paul. So we have supreme examples here. Timothy and his selfless, genuine, sincere concern for others over and above himself. Epaphroditus 
and his willingness to risk everything and anything to serve his brother Paul. So that's Paul and Timothy. I'm sorry, and Epaphroditus held out to the Philippians and to us as examples, men worthy of our imitation. So in light of this, who are you imitating? Who are you imitating? Who do you admire? Who do you seek to emulate? Who do you imitate? This is built into us. And we all do this from the time we're little. We're built to admire. We're built to follow examples. We're built to imitate. So who are you imitating? Young and old here today. Who are you imitating? Who are you looking up to? Who are you emulating? What is the obvious application here in our text? Imitate godly men. Imitate godly women. Look up to godly men. Look up to godly women. Find them. Watch them. Imitate them. Find them in your home. By God's grace, some of you don't have to leave your home. Many of you children, you're blessed. You don't need to leave your home to find these kinds of examples of godly men and godly women to imitate. Find them in your church. Find them among your church. Find them in history. I can remember a point in my life where, and it may have just been my own clouded vision, but I didn't see many godly examples around me. And so I found godly examples in history. Godly men and godly women who'd been dead for centuries. But I'd read anything and everything I could about them. And the more personal it was, the better. I wanted to know how they lived, how they dealt with conflict, how they made decisions, what they did in different situations. And I wanted to imitate them. Find godly examples. Watch godly examples. Ask them questions. I have been known to fly to other states to meet with people that I'd never met before to ask them two or three questions because I was desperate for an example. In conclusion, I want to draw out this need for examples. This is the point of this text for the Philippians and for us. Remember, it's not just a ministry report on how Timothy and Epaphroditus are doing and why Epaphroditus is coming back and why Timothy isn't. Paul is putting the spotlight on these character qualities. And he's saying, and we'll say explicitly later in the letter, hey, imitate these men, imitate me, follow these examples. In conclusion, I'd like to draw that out and give some practical application, some more practical application. Christians grow 
through instruction and imitation. It's fairly simple. Christians grow through instruction and imitation. Christians mature through instruction and imitation. This is what we call discipleship. Relationships in the church through which Christians grow by instructing one another, by imitating one another. That's all discipleship is. And by it, Christians grow and Christians mature. If you're a Christian and you want to grow, if you're a Christian and you want to mature, this is very important to you. You cannot read these verses, I don't think, Verses 19 through 30, you cannot read these verses, especially in this letter, without gaining insight into how close all these people were. Do you hear that as we're reading? How committed these people were to one another. Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and the Philippians. They are close. Paul clearly loved Timothy and Epaphroditus, and they all shared their lives together. Timothy and Epaphroditus clearly loved Paul. Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus clearly loved the Philippians, and the Philippians clearly loved these ministers. They are sorrowful for one another. They worry about one another. They are eager to minister to one another. They preach to one another. They are in close fellowship, relationship, receiving instruction from one another and imitating one another. I know that there are many of you here today Many of you here today, including myself, who are so thankful and grateful because you do not feel alone in the Christian life. You do not feel alone in this church. You have a group of friends that really know you. And they love you. And they care about you. And they've encouraged you in numerous ways. They have been there in times of need. You have been there for them in times of need. You can count on them. You know you can count on them. And they know they can count on you. Their friendship has been an encouragement to your joy. And it is not unlike what Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and the Philippians were experiencing in their friendship with one another. You have other Christians and brothers and sisters so that you know that you are not alone in this Christian life. What a blessing. I also know that there are some of you who do not yet have these kinds of friendships. Perhaps there has been some contribution you yourself have made to that. But it's something you want. 
It's something you long for. In fact, it's been something you have been built for and you don't have it. Do we as a church understand that there are people among us, even members, who feel alone? Do we know that? They're not sure they would be missed. They're not sure that if they were to face a trial tomorrow, who would be by their side? I think it would be good for all of us who are members of this church. It would be good for all of us who are members of this church to do our best to make sure that no one here feels alone in the Christian life. That we would do our best to ensure that your intention as a member of this church should be. Shouldn't it? Our intention should be that there would not be one person among us who feels lonely and unsupported in their Christian life. That should be our intention. No way. We don't want a one of us that is a part of this church family to feel alone and unsupported in their Christian life. Now, I know that there are many things that contribute to this. And I know that some of us ourselves, and I've been this person in the past, make it very difficult, knowingly or unknowingly, for people to have a relationship with us. And I know that we're all very busy. And I know that we're running into a hundred different directions and we've got a full calendar and we've got a full schedule. But think about this with me. It really doesn't take much to accomplish these goals. It takes all of us making sure we have a few people we are in relationship with. Isn't that what it takes? It takes every one of us making sure that we have a few people that we're in relationship with, a few people that we know. A few people that know us. A few people that can confess sin to us and we can confess sin to them. A few people that we can talk to when we're in the middle of something. A few people we trust are praying for us and that we're praying for them. A few people with whom we bear their burdens and they bear our burdens. A few people we speak truth into their life and they speak truth into our life. The question we should ask as we look around is, who needs my ministry? Who needs my friendship? Who needs my support? If we all thought that way, problem probably solved. I know it's probably an overstatement. But problem probably solved. So let me close with some very practical help. I think we're getting more and more practical. More and more practical as we think about how to apply this. 
But how do I do that? How do I engage in those kind of relationships right now? I'm just going to give you some practical ideas. I've given you these things before. Nothing new. But how do I engage in discipleship-based relationships right now? I don't want just superficial relationships. Something beyond that and deeper than that. I want to do what Paul's talking about. I want to have relationships like this, like Timothy and Epaphroditus and the Philippians, where we love one another, we care about one another, we're receiving instruction from one another, we're imitating one another, and therefore we're growing as Christians. So I want to do that, but it's tough and it's difficult and I don't always know how, so let me give you six, seven ideas. Number one, become a committed member of a local church. Become a committed member of a local church. If you're someone who's here and you're hopping around and you're going from church to church and you're at one church in the morning and you're at another church in the evening and you're at church if something better doesn't come up, then you're never going to have these kinds of relationships. So commit to a local church. Another way of saying that is commit to a family of Christians. Number two, arrive early at church gatherings and stay late. I told you it would be very practical. Very practical. And I know some of these things are impossible. They feel impossible. But you've got little kids. Arriving early? <laughs> I mean, that's Philippians 4.13 kind of tasks before you. Staying late? You know, if we stay late with all of our little children, we won't have any more friends, is what you're thinking. I'm telling you, come early. <laughs> come early. Stay late if, if this is something that needs to be addressed in your life. Number three, pray to God for intentional friendships. I mean, I hope you do, Christian. Pray about everything. Pray about everything what you think is significant, what you think is insignificant, please pray about everything. So pray for God to, to bring you these kinds of friendships, these intentional friendships and relationships. Look for ways to pray for others. Prayer is the point here. Pray for these friendships. Pray for others throughout the week. Pray with others publicly. Here, when we're together, pray for our members. If you're a member, you can go on CCB. You can get a list of members. Pray for them throughout the week. Number four, make your conversations intentional. For some of you, this may require some forethought. Make your conversations intentional. Look specifically to ask questions about others simply that you may know them and love them better. Different kinds of conversations, conversations where you're just telling people things and conversations where you're trying to ask questions and extract information from them. So think of questions that you can ask people so that you can know them and love them better. Number five, practice hospitality with members of your church by inviting them over to your home. Practice hospitality. Welcome them into your home. Number six. Schedule breakfasts, lunches, coffee, 
with other people in the church. Hey, would you like to grab lunch sometime? Hey, would you like to get breakfast sometime? Hey, would you like to go out for coffee sometime? Now, understand if you're a young single man and you ask a young single woman to do this, that's actually something different that's probably taking place. But for the rest of us, schedule breakfast, lunches, or some other culturally acceptable social engagement with teachable individuals of the same sex. (laughs) Depending on the person, you may decide to meet once indefinitely or for a set number of times. Maybe you go through a book together. Number seven, if you are, two more, if you are looking for this, if you're looking to be discipled, if you're, if you're looking to have these kinds of relationships, if you're, if you're understanding the importance of needing to imitate Christians and follow the example of other godly Christians, then I can't stress this enough and probably nothing has been more helpful for me in this aspect of my sanctification. Start watching older Christians. Now, I said older, not old. Older. Older than you. Five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years. Find them and watch them. Find godly men, find godly women who are further down this Christian life than you are and watch them. Watch them talk. Watch them rest. Watch them work. Watch them raise a family. Watch them deal with conflict. Watch them evangelize. Watch them persevere. Watch them serve in the church. Watch them fight against sin and imitate them. Ask them, can we go to coffee sometime? Can we go to lunch sometime? Can we have dinner sometime? I just like to pick your brain. I just like to ask you a few questions and and do that. I'm, I'm struggling with this, raising my son or raising my daughter. Do you have any insight or My wife and I are having this issue. Do you have any insight? Or I'm struggling with this at work. Do you have any insight? What do you do on Sunday after church? What do you do on the evenings when you come home from work? What does bedtime with your kids look like? How do you read God's word at home? How do you... Teach your children. How do you do devotions with your wife? I mean, most of us didn't grow up with these examples. You're not going to just figure it out. And it's not going to just come to you reading a book, most likely. Christians grow through instruction, but imitation. And I am telling you, we have so many godly men and women in this church. I personally have learned so much from godly men and women in this church. And many of them have taught me and they don't even know it. I just watch them. I see their kid do something bad. And then I try to get a close seat. I do this because I want to hear exactly what they say because he's a godly man. And I want to hear how he handles it. I want to be a fly on the wall. 
I want to watch as they come in and worship with their family. I'm going to watch as they leave with their family. I'm going to watch as they sing and as they pray and as they read God's word. I'm going to sit in my office over here and watch as they come in during the week and serve selflessly. And no one even knows that they're doing it. And they're paying attention to this detail and that detail. And they're picking up a piece of trash that I would just walk right past. So many opportunities. Because Christians grow through imitation and instruction. So we praise God for his word. We're thankful for the examples that are in God's word. Thank you, Paul, for telling us about Timothy and Epaphroditus. I want to imitate them. I want to be like them. God, show me who there is in my church family that I can learn from, that I can imitate because I want to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the examples that you give us. God, thank you for the supreme example of your son, Jesus Christ, who came and took on flesh, was born as a man and lived this life perfectly without sin. Every moment for your glory. God, thank you that now his spirit dwells within us as Christians to help us live like him. And God, thank you for the men and women that you have gifted to your church throughout generations. The example that they have been. God, I thank you for a mom and a dad who loved you. God, I thank you for other pastors who have come alongside me and encouraged me and rebuked me. God, I thank you for godly husbands and godly fathers that have knowingly and unknowingly helped me learn how to grow as a husband and as a father. God, thank you for the many men and women in this church who are concerned with the welfare of others, who are concerned with ministering your gospel to others, who are willing to risk for your sake. God, would you draw us all as a church body closer to one another in relationship with one another that we may grow as Christians through the instruction and imitation of one another. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.